Now, I grew up at a time when the water service in my city gets interrupted occasionally. So you could be bathing halfway with soap and suds all over your body when the water pressure suddenly drops. And what do you do? Uh, before it trickles to a stop, you need to finish your shower or else you will have to pat yourself dry and feeling sticky all over. Now this water service interruption happens at times without warning. Now thankfully, we have a neighbor who has an extra source of water supply. He has an artisan well, which he dug secretly. And so he would pull out a water hose to the entrance to his home, and he would let people come and fill their buckets free of charge. And so you ask, how much water can one get? How many liters is one allowed? Well, as many containers as one brings with him. So if you bring two empty milk jugs, for example, uh, you uh, get two milk jugs of water. If you wheel in, uh, let's say, a big barrel, an empty barrel, then you wheel home a barrel full of water, if not for some spillage along the way. Again, how much water can you bring home? The answer is, it depends. It depends on you. Because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You bring a small jug, you get a small jug. You bring a large drum, you get a large drum. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Sometimes, even more. That is, if you bring soap along, you could wash your dirty hands and your dirty feet on the spot. If you bring your used spoon and forks along and other utensils, you could wash them on the spot. And so you will then go home with more. You will have water and you will also go home having cleaned yourself and your stuff. But pity the one who did not go get water from my generous neighbor because when his bucket of water at home runs out, used up in the evening, and water service has yet to be restored by sundown, well, you can say that even what he has will be taken away from him. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. So whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. It is a saying. It is an idiomatic expression that gives assurance and also issues a warning. Assurance and warning. Now, you may never have been told that saying. Have you, have somebody told you that saying before? I doubt so. But you know, if you think hard, you must have experienced that assurance or that warning played out. So I do recall when I was in high school, my physics teacher, he would tell the class, class, if you cannot solve the physics problem, you know where to find me. 
after school. And so the discerning student, such as yours truly, knows that it is an invitation to extra lessons after class. And so should you accept the teacher's invitation, you get your physics problems solved. You also get a few more sample questions on the spot to answer. But if you snub the teacher's offer, you deprive yourself of further understanding certain concepts like momentum, torque, and Doppler's effect, if you know what I mean. So with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. Who said that? It was the Lord Jesus. And he said that to a small group of people comprising the 12 disciples and those around him. He said that to encourage them. He said that also to give them an advance, an advance warning. You see, Jesus called it a day. He just called it a day after speaking to his biggest crowd ever. The crowd was so large, the Lord had to situate himself on an improvised platform, which is called a boat. He sat in the boat out on the lake while the huge crowd gathered along the shore. And that picture tells you that the Lord now has a huge following. His public ratings may have hit very high, and it will soon flip the charts. There is no stopping Jesus, and there is no stopping the dream kingdom that people hear him talk about. That is what the picture of the crowd tells us. And yet, Jesus is not going to be fooled by the numbers. And he does not want the disciples to be swayed by it as well. And so to that huge crowd, the largest so far, according to Mark, the Lord suddenly switched teaching styles. He spoke to them in coded language. He spoke to them in parables. So did the crowd turn ecstatic after they heard Jesus teaching them in parables? Did they all go home tweeting about the best sermon that they've ever heard? I don't think so. At least that is how it sounded from the disciples. You see, according to Matthew's gospel, the disciples asked the Lord, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why'd you do that? Because it was something new. You know, I liken it to going to a concert, concert of your favorite pop singer, you name it. I don't want to tell you mine. Imagine the crowd is all fired up and Miss Pop Singer enters the stage. The audience suddenly grows wild, but your favorite pop singer decides to sing R&Bs that evening. Rhythm and blues all evening. She suddenly switched genres unannounced and she sang new songs that you've never heard. How would you go home after the concert? Jesus taught in a new style. He preached new content. 
And this is not new as in new and exciting, new that excited people. This is new as in tiabo in our lingo. No comprending. And we know this because when the crowd has gone home and when Jesus was alone, the disciples asked him about the parables. Why switch genres at the height of popularity? Why speak in parables? And, and what's the meaning of the parables? And Jesus explained. He says it was to reveal and it was to conceal. To reveal and to conceal. So he told them in verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. It was to reveal something hidden about the kingdom of God to the disciples, aka the ones inside the kingdom. It was to reveal. But it was also to conceal, next slide, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. It was to conceal. Now, Jesus spoke in parables to reveal the secret of the kingdom to the ones inside, to the twelve, and to the small number around him. And so what was the secret that was made known to the disciples? Well, firstly, Jesus told them that numbers do not translate to commitment. Numbers do not translate to commitment. Just because they're getting a large following wherever Jesus went does not mean that there's going to be a big kingdom population for starters. No, that's not the case. So he tells the disciples, in a sense, do not let the numbers mislead you. Because just as a farmer went out to sow, his scattered seed fell along the path, among the rocky places, among the thorns. It's only seed that fell on good soil that would produce fruit. So a big bag of seed does not translate to a huge harvest. And the Lord explained, next slide, and he says the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seed sown in rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the world, of the word, they quickly fall away. And still others, like seed sown among thorns, they hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things, they come in and they choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Now, in other words, the crowd that they just saw that day, they're all like seed. They're all like seed that fell on different soil because there are different responses 
to Jesus. Different responses to his call to repentance and belief in the good news. So Jesus says, you have one who rejects it on entry level. He dismisses the teaching about the kingdom. He is the seed sown along the path. No chance for the seed to germinate at all. Does that describe you? So C.S. Lewis describes such a person in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Slide comes up. He writes, I once had a patient, a sound atheist who used to read in the British Museum. Oh, one day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way, meaning to say that he was toying about the idea about God and his word and his truth. Then he says, he writes, but I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. It's like your stomach is calling. The patient brightened up considerably and by the time I had added the phrase, much better come back after lunch, you know, and go into it with a fresh mind. He was already halfway to the door. And once he was in the streets, the battle was won. And I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus, the one that goes to Topayo, right? Number 73 bus going past, and before he had gone very far, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his book, books a healthy dose of real life by which he meant the bus and the newsboy was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just could not be true. So this was screw tape writing to Wormwood, telling Wormwood this is our strategy to distract the person who suddenly just became interested about God and his word. Suggest to him that he's hungry. Take him out, and once he sees the newspaper, in today's terms, maybe a news website, and once he sees a bus going past, we have won the war. We have suggested to him that that sort of thing about God and his truth just could not be true. Now Jesus, his crowd, had a lot of such patience. Could you be the same kind of patient? So you hear God's word calling to repentance and obedience, but you decide not to give serious thought to it. That word, the call to repentance and obedience, gets snatched away from you. Another type is the one who accepts the kingdom, thinking that it promises a trouble-free life. So Jesus to them is life's trouble buster. He is life's problem solver. But they never get to know that the Lord uses troubles and problems to make one holy. And so when troubles come, they get disillusioned with Jesus and they backed out. They are the ones like seed that fell on rocky places and did not grow root. Now some of you have heard me talk about my son 
when he was in secondary school, he had gut issues uh, that made him reject food and, and puke. And it turns out that his bowels were entangled and ob obstructed food that was, that was being taken in. And so in one single year, he had two surgeries to, to try to disentangle. And the greatest worry that uh, Anna and I had was not whether it will be resolved or not. I mean, we were worried that it will be resolved or not. But the most pressing concern was whether the troubles that befell him may cause him to back out on his faith and leave faith. And we thank God that in God's mercy, he did not. So after one surgery, when he was wheeled out of the uh, recovery room, he whispered to me and asked me to pray with him in thanksgiving that the op was successful. Now there are people who may think that following Jesus is following for a trouble-free life. These are like seed that fell on rocky places. Does that describe you? Then there are the ones who receive the seed that fell among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it. So the, it was the Apostle Paul who warned, and he said, people who want to get rich they fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. First Timothy chapter six. So to Paul, such a person could be churched. After all, he wrote to Timothy who was pastoring a church. And so such a person is in the church, but the higher priorities of winning the rat race somehow steer him away from the path of the cross, from the path of contentment, which are examples of kingdom teachings. We may have uh, quite a number of such people in our midst. And they're not always the ones who drive the fast cars, no. They could be the ones checking their Shopee apps. Shopee! While trying to listen to the sermon. And so by the end of the service, they are done checking items out instead of checking themselves out, checking their hearts out. Does this describe you? There are different responses to Jesus and to his word. And Jesus tells the disciples, do not be swayed by the numbers. The big crowd does not equate to a big kingdom population. And so if I were to uh, somehow translate this, uh, the obvious point of the parable this morning, it would sound a little bit like this. So bear with me, will you? This morning, we have on record 186 who signed up to come to service. 
But no, we don't have 186 based on past records. We have less than that. Why? Because some have signed up to be guaranteed a seat, but they sign up without guaranteeing that they will come and occupy that seat. Some are here because their friends are here. If they are left alone to worship, they would rather be someplace else. Some are here because their parents forced them into coming. They would rather stay in bed. I mean, it rained early this morning, right? It's so cool and nice to just stay in bed. Such lovely weather to noah in bed. 186. But not all 186 are inside the kingdom. Because like seed that fell on different types of soil, so could we be. All we who are gathered here this morning. I could say those things to translate the parable today. Then I could end by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I could say that, and I just did. But I am saying it in a hypothetical tone because it is best to let the parable and the explanation Jesus gave do its work to reveal what following Jesus and submitting to his rule means, what the kingdom of God looks like, Lots of pseudo-followers, sham followers. And yet, there will be real followers. Not a lot, but there are. And which ones are they? Next slide. Mark chapter 4, verse 20. Others like seeds sown on good soil. They hear the word. They accept it and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even 100 times what was so, so from the bag of seeds that the farmer sowed, three quarters of it did not go on to bear fruit, but the one-fourth that fell on good soil, it went on to bear fruit, much fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of obedience. Jesus spoke in parables to reveal this hidden truth about the kingdom of God. And it is only revealed to the ones inside, the ones who asked, the ones who sought to understand the parable and understand they did increasingly. Why? Because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. So Jesus went to tell two more parables. Slide. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or get up, gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces uh, grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Another parable, again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. 
And yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. So what does the second parable tell us about the kingdom? Well, firstly, the kingdom will take time. It will take time. The seed will need to germinate. It will take night and day. So have you ever done a science project of planting a bean and waiting for it to, to sprout and grow after a few days? You cannot hurry it. You cannot dig it out one day just to check on it. Because if you do that, you are going to ruin it. The kingdom's growth will take time. Secondly, it's unexplainable. It's just unexplainable. Now, science has attempted to explain to us how germination takes place, right? Once seed is in contact with water, there's a reaction that would take place. Uh, it will cause the seed to wake up from its suspended animation, and then it will expend energy to grow roots, to push roots downward, and also to push the first leap first leaf upward. That is science's explanation based on observation. But you see, to the common man, it is simply he does not know how. It could mean ignorance or of science, but I suppose the better meaning is it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I didn't know how it happened. The better meaning actually is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 7, where Paul says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So because of the pandemic, some of us have kept a lot of indoor plants. And if you've been successful, please do not congratulate yourself. Yeah. It's not because you watered it, but it's because of God who makes it grow. The growth of the kingdom is humanly unexplainable because it is solely God's work. Thirdly, the kingdom will reach its fullness. There is the certainty of finality, and this is explained by the image of the harvest. And uh, scripture uses harvest time to uh, give, us, give us an image of judgment time when the king comes with his kingdom and he will execute judgment from his throne. The kingdom's growth will take time. Its growth is unexplainable humanly because it is God's work. The kingdom will reach its consummation. There shall be a day of reward. There shall be a day of judgment. Then the third parable compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. Now, proverbially, the mustard seed is considered to be the smallest seed. So small that if you drop one in the field, consider it gone. Uh, because you won't be able to pick it up, let alone even find it. But though small as a seed, the mustard grows into a huge plant with big branches and shade that welcome birds to perch on it. 
So scholars tell us that the imagery of a tree with branches and the shade it provides for birds and animals is, is symbolic of strength and dominion. So if you read the book of Daniel, you may recall that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And one of his dreams, it involved a huge tree, a, a huge tree with big branches, beautiful leaves, and abundant fruit. And the prophet Daniel interpreted it to mean the kingdom's strength, the kingdom's dominion, so, so powerful that it reached the ends of the earth. So this third parable tells us that the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming is going to start very small, even unnoticeable. Don't be swayed by the big crowd because when the dust has settled, it will just be the 12 disciples, less one. In fact, that was how it started. Jesus called Simon, then he called Andrew, then he called James and John, then he called Levi. It has small beginnings. Yet, by the time Jesus returns to usher in the kingdom in its fullness, remember the tree imagery, strength, and dominion. So why did Jesus speak in parables? It was to reveal this hidden truth about the kingdom to the ones inside to the ones who sought to understand from the Lord. Because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Now today, you and I, hopefully, have come to know this same truth over time. How so? Next slide. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed instead don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. You see, the hidden truth about the kingdom, the different responses to it, its small beginnings, its slow and gradual growth, and many more, they have been revealed to us because the disciples would go on preach the gospel placing the lamp on the stand, making known to us what Jesus taught them. And that is why you and I have the Gospel of Mark today. Because Mark, this writer, took pains in making Jesus' words known to us. What was concealed, whispered to the disciples even, is for the purpose of their bringing it out into the open. So the question now is, with what measure are you using to acquire it? Remember, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. So whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. So here we are presented an assurance, but also a warning, because Jesus' purpose in parables was to reveal and to conceal. So the Lord explained in verse 11, 
He says to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Why? So that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, this quote was taken from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah who prophesied to the people of Israel. You know, the prophets of old, basically they have just one mission. That is to call people to repentance and to turn back to the Lord. So to those who heeded the call, there's comfort. But to the rest, it's judgment. Why? Because they had rejected the law of the Lord. So when God's prophet came, what he said will just fall on deaf ears. They would never perceive and understand. And so the prophecy simply served to confirm their rejection and confirm their judgment. So Jesus' parables confirm people's rejection of God's Son. Why? Proof? Evidence? Well, he was charged to be blaspheming, for instance. There was a plot to kill Jesus. And even Jesus' own family members said he was nuts, that he was crazy. Jesus spoke in parables to reveal to the ones inside, to the ones who sought to understand more from Jesus. Jesus spoke in parables also to conceal God's kingdom from those who opposed his works, to those who rejected him, to those who dismissed his teachings. Friends, which one describes you? Which one best describes you? You know, as I read Mark, I am, com I am comforted that uh, Mark did not shy away from exposing the flaws of Jesus' family. I mean, he could have left out the family's comments about Jesus and respect their privacy. But there you have it in chapter 3. And you heard that from the sermon last week. They said of Jesus, he is out of his mind. And when his mother and brothers sent word for Jesus, the Lord said, who are my mother and brothers? And pointing to the ones listening to him, he said, these are my mothers and my brothers, for whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So why is this humiliating incident a comfort? Well, because we know that although the family may not be supportive of Jesus, actually disbelief is the stronger word, we would read, after the Lord rose from the grave, we would read of Mary being part of the church. We would also read of Jesus' brothers James and Jude, who would go on to become New Testament writers, showing us that if the first three types of soil, you know, the, the hard path, the rocky soil, the one with thorns, if the first three types of soils best describe you, there is still hope. There is still hope. You 
can be the seed that fell on good soil. Turning away from sin, giving your commitment to the Lord, increasing your measure to learn of His will and produce a crop 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will enable us to increase our measure of learning much from your word, to know more about your will, your ways, and the kingdom of God. Help us to be seed that fell on good soil, that would produce the fruit of repentance, the fruit of obedience. For so whoever obeys your will is considered the brother, the sister, the mother of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us from sin and proclaims the kingdom of God and in whose name we pray. Amen.